in neuropsychology, short-term memory actually is analogous to attention. It's also called working memory. The ability to just hold something in your mind, but you've forgotten it the minute you stop thinking about it. Hello and welcome to this episode of A Grey Matter. I'm Rebecca Archer. Have you ever misplaced your keys or forgotten to bring your lunch to work? It's hard to overstate the importance of memory. It's what makes us who we are. But when our memories fade, a certain question arises. Is our brain ageing or has something gone wrong? Here at the Queensland Brain Institute, Professor Peter Nestor is a clinician scientist who studies the behavioural profiles of degenerative dementias with the aim of developing a greater understanding of the brain regions under the greatest threat of neurodegeneration. But to give his work context, Professor Nestor is also interested in when memory starts to falter, unimpacted by dementia or any other brain disorder or disease. Thank you so much for your time today. A pleasure. Now, your work crosses the boundary of clinic and lab. What does that look like and what benefits does that have for patient outcomes? What that looks like is that I work in a, in a memory clinic, diagnosing and managing people with cognitive problems, but that is also the substrate for our research. So all of the research I do involves real people with these actual diseases. And so, yes, I, I diagnose them and then if they're happy to do so, we ask them to participate in our research studies. And those studies vary depending on which precise diagnosis they have. Now, a lot of people no doubt consider dementia to be a journey into memory loss, but it is actually more than that, isn't it? What's happening in the brain during the onset of dementia? It is more than that. It is also more than just dementia. Dementia is actually a descriptive term for the, for the sort of symptoms and signs of losing mental abilities. It's not really a diagnosis. So the, the, the question is, well, what diseases cause dementia? That's a very important concept to have clear because one, one will often, for instance, hear Alzheimer's disease, which is a disease being used interchangeably with dementia. That's not correct. Alzheimer's disease is the commonest disease that causes dementia, but there are other diseases as well. And then depending on which disease we're talking about, it can affect the brain in different ways. So the classic way that Alzheimer's presents is with people becoming forgetful in day to day, but other types of disease or other clinical degenerations of the brain can cause quite different symptoms, affecting knowledge, for instance, or the way we perceive the world through our eyes, or it can, another version that we call behavioural variant frontotemporal dementia affects the personality and presents with personality changes rather than forgetfulness. So memory is a crucial component of making us who we are, but why would you say that is and what functions in the brain embed these sort of life-defining processes? I'm glad you asked because that's what I want to talk about today, memory. Memory means all sorts of different things. We, have it, we, we break it up into all sorts of different component parts. If you were to take piano lessons or tennis lessons, you would expect that over the period of time and if you practice, you would get better. That is a form of memory. You hear sports people, for instance, call it muscle memory. Actually, the memory is taking place in the brain, but, but the memory is programming the muscles to do things in an unconscious way. And the fact that someone who has never held a tennis racket before will be much worse at tennis than someone who's been having good training over a period of months tells us that 
the brain is learning how to play tennis. And that's that's a form of memory. We call this non-declarative memory because in that situation, it's not a conscious type of memory. You don't think of where to put your arm when you're holding the racket and so on. And then the kind of memory that we talk about in the clinic when people complain that their memory isn't what it should be, that's conscious memory or otherwise known as declarative memory. So that's, in other words, memory that we think about as opposed to these automatic programs. But all of these things from learning to walk to learning to play tennis to remembering what you did yesterday, they are all in a way forms of memory. So if we focus in on conscious memory, we then typically divide that further into what we call semantic memory and episodic memory. Semantic memory is memory of fact knowledge. Knowing, for instance, that Paris is the capital of France is a semantic memory, or knowing that a cucumber is a a, a kind of salad vegetable, so on. Episodic memory, in contrast, is remembering what you did at a particular point in time, remembering what you were doing this morning at seven o'clock, for instance, remembering what you did last Sunday or last Christmas. Now, straight away, it should become apparent that these two types of memory are quite different. When we talk about Paris being the capital of France or a cucumber being a salad vegetable, that doesn't come from any particular point in time. We encounter these facts throughout our life constantly. We don't remember that Paris is the capital of France because when we were six years old, someone told us and we think of that person telling us can happen, but it's unlikely. In contrast, episodic memory, what were you doing on Sunday, is not only unique to each of us, it only happened once last Sunday. And that makes episodic memory particularly vulnerable, remembering what you did on a, at a particular point in time. Each one of those memories is unique, as opposed to each, each time you came across the idea of Paris being the capital of France. And that means that episodic memory is probably the reason why it's vulnerable to disease, that you've only got one bite of the cherry of knowing what you did last Sunday. But then it also introduces another concept, which is I think that people, and, and I'm thinking here of people who come to clinic complaining of their memory who don't have dementia, So not everyone who comes to see us will get a diagnosis of a degenerative brain disease. So what is it that makes people feel that there's something wrong with their memory when perhaps there isn't? And so the key first point there is that we don't remember everything from our life. We don't, it's not like a a sort of a videotape of, uh, of every scene, of every moment that's in our mind. And in fact, if we did have something like that, it would probably be quite disabling because we would be full, our heads would be full of irrelevant information. Now, a way uh, uh, to think about this is consider, for instance, the way you get from home to work each day on the bus or driving a car or whatever and you go a particular route and you do the same thing each time you don't remember each and every journey if I asked you to visualize your journey from work in the evening you can probably your your mind will pick up little scenes of what the streets look like along the way or things like that but you won't necessarily remember the exact details except for perhaps the last journey And that's a good thing because we don't want our head full of all this kind of inane information when we're just on autopilot. What then makes us remember something when we're doing repetitive mundane activities? Well, if there's an emotional salience, that will change this 
quite significantly. So imagine one day you were driving home from work and a horse escaped from a paddock and was running down the road. Well, that's something you're probably going to remember for a very long time because it's unusual. Or if something has a very strong emotional valence, like, for instance, you witnessed a car crash. And in that sense, that, that's sort of then what happens in post-traumatic stress disorder is the problem there is that the memory won't go away and every time the individual closes their eyes, they're reliving this horrendous experience. So anyway, that then leads to the question of well, what, what are the factors that make us remember things and why would we be more likely to forget? And one of them is we also have to pay attention. So moving away from those mundane repetitive activities like driving a car to work, What's going to make you remember this now? You know, Well, if you're paying attention and engaged in this conversation, that's, making, that's going to make it more likely that you will remember this in the future. If, on the other hand, as you're sitting there politely nodding away, you're actually thinking about, oh, I've got to pick up chicken and vegetables on the way home tonight, and I'll just let this guy prattle on while I, <laughs> I sort out the rest of my day, well, then it's highly unlikely that you're going to remember much of this conversation. And this is then what happens in that situation of benign memory lapses and why we see people who don't have dementia thinking there's something wrong with their memory, is that often what the the case is they're noticing normal forgetfulness or they've become somewhat introspective or they're lost in their own thoughts and therefore they're not paying attention to the world around them. So I'll give a couple of scenarios where this happens, where we see this quite a lot. Why would someone suddenly change from being a person who accepts that they don't remember everything to a person who suddenly starts worrying that they don't remember everything? A very common one is they've just been caring for their parent who's developed an actual dementia. And then after that, the the next time they kind of uh, leave their glasses at home or something like that, oh gosh, this could be the start of it for me. And then that creates a sort of a a worry. The other thing is, though, that once you start worrying, that in itself means that you're not paying attention so well to the rest of the, the outside world. So that could be that you're completely stressed with work, for instance, and therefore you you're not paying attention to the things you need to. It happens when people become depressed. They can be, you know, a, a depression can lead to someone becoming very introspective and sitting there ruminating in their negative thoughts of the, the horrible feelings of the depression and therefore not paying attention to the world around them. And therefore, when someone says, did you pick up the groceries, whatever, oh, no, I, I, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. Oh, no, there's something wrong with my memory. Oh, no, I'm getting dementia. Whereas actually, no, it was this person is just lost in their negative thoughts, sadly. And it doesn't have to be a depression. I mean, you know, people in, in, in work environments where they're put under a lot of stress, this will happen that, you know, you happens to all of us. And yeah, and so then that leads to this perception that one is forgetting things and that this could be a disease. What unfortunately often happens there is that this tends to snowball. And then you start attaching significance to things that you wouldn't have attached anything to previously. So let's get back to the example of the drive home from work. You drive home from work each day and you go the same route, hop in the car, you go on autopilot, perhaps turn on the radio and off you go. And then on a, an, an example I usually like to give is that, but then on a particular day, you've made a mental note through the day that you've got to go and pick up some dry cleaning on the way home. And then invariably what happens is that you, 
go onto autopilot, turn the radio on, and then somewhere after dinner in the evening you think, oh, I forgot to pick up the, the dry cleaning. This, again, is a perfectly normal thing to do because once we're lost in our thoughts and we're into autopilot, it's very hard to remember that, you know, and that's why we obviously set ourselves reminders or leave a note on the dashboard of the car if it's really important or something like that. But now, if you think that, if you don't think there's anything wrong with you, you just shrug your shoulders, oh, damn, I'll, okay, tomorrow I'm going to tie a string around my finger or something, you know. On the other hand, though, if you're already starting to have these ruminations and now you do that, well, there you go. <laughs> there's, there's more proof. And then you become even more gloomy and morose and introspective and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And so that's what can lead to this kind of feeling that there's some, something wrong with me and it's getting worse. And, and obviously the getting worse factor is what makes people really worry that this is a brain disease because obviously diseases like Alzheimer's do get worse over time. So little daily things like misplacing your keys or your phone or your glasses, you know, and searching around the house, what did I do with it? Where are they? That's what you're talking about when you're saying a lack of paying attention and necessarily, you know, you don't necessarily enter a room with the sole focus of I'm going to put my phone down there and I'm going to remember I put it there when you're doing several other tasks at once. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, And, you know, for most of us, we're not particularly disciplined with those kind of things. You know, we walk in on one occasion and we put our glasses on the kitchen counter and the next time on the dining table and we have to sort of retrace our footsteps and so on. But then the more one is lost in thoughts of other, other thoughts, the more likely this will happen. So in other words, this happens to all of us but it will happen worse once we start worrying about it. What we're talking about, that fear of forgetfulness, is quite tangible. Losing the memory of our loved ones and cherished moments in life, you know, that's a a pretty scary thing. Does our memory decline as we age? Is it an inevitable process that it will get worse? Some things decline a bit with age. So that ability to remember episodes you know so you know what we are doing on the weekend that doesn't decline much with age unless you get a brain disease certain things do word finding so this is not so if you you think back to where we started with the, the distinction between semantic and episodic facts don't decline with age but the ability to retrieve them quickly does for instance well Paris and Francis is such an easy example that you know, a slightly harder one. What's the capital of Canada? And someone might know at once that the capital of Canada is Ottawa, or they might not know it and never knew it. But if they do know it, that might become slower to retrieve. Mm. Retrieving the names of people declines a bit. Not knowing who the people are, that that tends to stay. But, you know, and and so a great example of this that I think everyone's familiar with is that sort of... um, grandparents who call the grandkids by their own kids' names, that sort of retrieval, that's not a sign of dementia, that's this sort of difficulty in the moment with retrieval and they they, they do know that the granddaughter is Natasha even if they said um, Debbie or whatever their daughter's name in the heat of the moment. That kind of thing, the, the speed of retrieval if you like becomes sort of slower with in, in older age. It's interesting. I find someone will mention something and I think I have no memory of that whatsoever. Mm. Oh, your memory is so good. Is Mm. that the case? Are some people just better at remembering longer term memories than others? Perhaps a little, but 
the, the, the confound there is, remember what I was saying before about, you know, the sort of salience we have attached to memories. Yes. And so different people will form more salience to different events. And when someone retrieves a memory, say from say say you're speaking to someone you've known since childhood and they talk about something you did when you were ten or whatever and you can't remember it, they're the one doing the choosing of the memory. They're not going to remember something they've forgotten by definition, right? Yes. So say you've both got a memory of something you did when you're ten and you've each forgotten each other's memory. Well, then then you're even. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so then, so then, what's probably uh, someone who seems to have a good remote memory of you know or details from childhood is probably just more prone to talking about childhood, and so then they're selecting the the memories that they that they've remembered. And so on that, I'm always confounded by how children seem to have extremely accurate memories for things that seemed fairly inconsequential, really. But, you know, if you went on a camping trip two years ago and they'll remember exactly what they ate for breakfast and yet they can't remember that they need to brush their teeth or they're ignoring that they need to brush their teeth every single day. What's going on there? Yeah, well, okay, so those examples, you're brushing your teeth, that's an activity a bit the same as you're on autopilot driving Mm. home from work. That's sort of a repetitive mundane activity where you haven't kind of have driven home to you yet that, you know, between getting ready for bed and getting into bed, you brush your teeth. And so you just sort of forget about it. As opposed to that, an, a, a true episodic memory, which is you know what you ate on that you know first day of the camping holiday, but the difference there is also that that is a novel, wonderful world for a child, and so whilst you know what you had for breakfast on your first day of holidays might be a bit you know passe for an adult. That might be a highly significant event for a child and, you know, they haven't had their mind filled up with, you know, 2,000 instances of eating breakfast on the weekend or something like that. So, I I mean, if I compare, there was a time in my career where I was kind of travelling constantly and so I I couldn't tell you all of the, the sort of hotel breakfasts I had in Europe but I can remember taking my kids with me when I had to give a talk somewhere once and they remembered that for years their first ever experience of a hotel breakfast and so you, you've got to kind of look at it that for, through a child's eyes something that has become habituated and mundane to an adult is the equivalent of the time you met your famous rock star or something like that. If we look at short-term and long-term memory, my understanding is that in particularly older people who might be suffering from memory loss as a result of a type of dementia or a disease, their long-term memory from things back in their childhood are very accurate. However, their short-term memory can be fairly patchy. Is that the case? Is that right? No. Okay. Um, but it's what everyone says, isn't it? You mm. hear that all the time. It's this, you know, and I hear that constantly in clinic. It's their short-term right. memory doc. That's what the the problem is. We've already divided up memory into semantic and episodic. Another way of dividing it up is into short-term and long-term. But it's actually the way that's done in the way we think psychologically of memory is completely different from mm. how the general public think of it. In neuropsychology, short-term memory actually is a analogous to attention. It's also called working memory. 
the ability to just hold something in your mind but you've forgotten it the minute you stop thinking about it. The classic example of this is you need to dial a number for a phone number. You read the phone number off whatever it is you're reading it from off the page. You hold that number in your head while you go and dial it. But then 10 minutes later, what phone number do you did you dial? You've got no idea. You, you only held it there for as long as you needed it. That's true short-term memory. When the public talks about short-term memory, they're actually talking about episodic memory, but for recent events. This is where it kind of gets confusing, because imagine you've just witnessed some highly salient thing, some, something that you're not going to forget. A lion escaped from the zoo, and you've just seen it running down the, the street. And this happened 15 minutes ago, and you come and tell me, you wouldn't believe this, I just saw a lion running down the street. In lay terms, people call that short-term memory because it happened 15 minutes ago. But uh, the reason I use this highly salient example is I want to use an example where you're not going to forget it because you're never going to forget that, right, if you ever saw a lion running down the street. Yes. So in 20 years' time, when, I don't know, we're sitting around and um, there's a story comes on the news about the zoo and the lion enclosure, and you say, do you know, once I saw a lion running down the street... So that's the same memory. So is that now short-term memory or long-term memory? It's, it's the same. So in other words, that, that distinction that the general public use for short-term and long-term is an artificial distinction. Now, obviously, 15 minutes ago, you remember every single detail of what was going on, whereas it'll, it'll become more fragmented. Anyway, getting back to the question, when someone's developing Alzheimer's disease, they will have a problem particularly with episodic memory whether it happened 15 minutes ago or 20 or 30 or 50 years ago. There is a bit more of a a hit to recent events because you can divide memory into you need to encode it, you need to register it, it needs to be stored, and then you need to be able to pull it back from... This is one of the other differences to working memory, that episodic memory, you don't remember things from your childhood because you're thinking about them constantly. That's that's the magic of it. You can not think about something for 10 years and then it, you can have it pop back into your, into your head. That's, that's not the case with that attention working memory. So if you've already got a disease of your memory where you're not laying down new memories very well, well, that will tend to have a bit of a hit more on you know, recent events since the disease began. However, it's actually not true that remote memory is normal. And that gets us back to what we were talking about before, where, you know, the the adult friend remembers something from your childhood that you don't, but that's them choosing the memory, okay? And, in fact, we use this, I use this very, this is a very helpful test clinically because the sort of the stressed out person will complain about no short-term memory, whereas people with Alzheimer's typically actually their remote memories are affected as well. And so when you start asking them about their past life, you find that there are gaps all over the place. So what's going on then with the family when the family say it's the short-term memory? And in fact, they'll often say the short-term memory, their long-term memory is better than mine, Doc, even when it's not. Well, it's because the patient is controlling the narrative about what gets retrieved from the remote past. So you'll have a, and, and I've seen this to extreme examples where people even with advanced dementia and, and the family, perhaps also through grief or perhaps in a bit of denial or something like that, that they'll, that the, the person will basically have one anecdote left and they'll just say it over and over again and the family will interpret that as good remote memory when actually you, you take them out of their comfort zone and say, well, you know, tell me tell me something else about what happened when you were at school and they can't even tell you what school they went to. 
So, and that's something that clinically it's it's not very pleasant, I guess, making people recount memories they or you know examining in that way. But it's something we use very useful clinically to, to understand is this really a disease of memory? Is it true that there are things that people can do to improve their memory? We see lots of things advertised as, oh, you know, a crossword a day is going to help ward off, you know, dementia. Is there anything you can actually do to improve your memory? Not really. If there's nothing wrong with you, then there's probably not, not that much to be done. In that situation where we see someone who's very stressed and therefore is no longer able to pay attention properly to the world and so is misplacing things and so on. Well, I mean, treating the stress, obviously, removing them from whatever the stress is or treating depression if there's depression, but also just kind of developing some better habits, you know, sort of drilling yourself that my keys always go in the tray by the door and things like that, which may take several goes, but, you know, if you keep at it, you can you can drill yourself into some into some good habits. And we, we, we all kind of have those kind of drills for things like, well, most people will have a bit of a checklist for making sure they've got the keys before they shut the door to their house and lock themselves out, for instance, that, that kind of thing. But the idea that you can train yourself by doing puzzles or something is not really not really true. You must see some heartbreaking things in your clinic. There's devastation associated with memory loss and a, a beloved family member who can no longer recognise their extended family or their close family. Yeah. Was there anything in particular that drove you into this line of research? In the beginning, I probably was mostly interested in how the brain worked, actually, and, you know, seeing all the incredible things that can happen <laughs> happen to the brain and therefore all the incredible things that our brains do when they're working properly and just that type of thing. But then as you go along and you see the effects this has, it, it does it does kind of change you and it makes me think a lot about well, what's good and what's bad and what's worthwhile, which is why I mean, I, I suspect there would be people in the world who'd say, oh, yes, you should do crosswords every day. Well, in fact, I know there are. <laughs> or, you know, buy this, buy this app that I developed and, mm. um, and use it, you know, and, and then that'll, that'll stop you having dementia. I, if you do have a disease that causes degeneration and causes dementia, it's going to get worse over time. And I, it makes me more and more, the more of this I've seen, and it's been you know, decades now that I've been doing this, enjoy the time you've got, you know, and because, you know, if, in a condition like Alzheimer's disease, it does start off fairly mild with some forgetfulness. And it does break my heart sometimes to see people, rather than enjoying that time doing quality things with loved ones and so on, doing all sorts of silly things to try to stave off, you know, and ending up blowing the, the relatively better time they had doing things that weren't very useful to them rather than using the time to in, enjoy. Going on a nice holiday while you can still enjoy it, whatever the case may be, you know. Eating your favourite food. Mm, enjoy your life seems like yeah. a good motto to live by regardless. But <laughs> yes. It's probably also a, a very nice note to end on. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for your time and sharing your experience and knowledge today. It's been just a pleasure. My pleasure as well. If you'd like to learn more or support the work we do here at the Queensland Brain Institute, head to qbi.uq.edu.au. I'm Rebecca Archer and that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening.